Coupe de Thrill, shining headlights on the road less traveled. The podcast about thrilling careers and exotic lifestyles, how you might go about pursuing them, and inspiring stories from the driven individuals who have been there, done that. I'm your host, Chad Herman. Let's take a ride. Welcome to the show. I'm sitting down here with Brian Morris, hang glider, paraglider, entrepreneur, harmonium player, yogi. The list just goes on and on. Really cool guy. We're sitting down in Chattanooga post-flight, my first powerless flight that Brian took me on earlier. It was absolutely amazing. How's your day going, Brian? Today is, is one of those just amazing days. It's good to good to be alive, good to wake up to... A- Nice sunrise. It's just nice to to be present with the day and see how the day unfolds. Yeah, I couldn't have imagined a better day. It looked like the weather wasn't going to work out for us, and we snuck in a quick flight right before a storm came in. So ever thankful to you. That was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And I know it's just another day for you. Brian's been at it for many years now with a powerless flight, living up here in Chattanooga, building tiny houses, you know, building yoga studios, making it all happen. Yeah, there's there's something very special that happens when you don't fill up your day and you don't always have this structured plan and to-do list and all these things you have to do and you can just kind of go with the flow. And I mean, today's a perfect example. We, You and I have been messaging each other for over 10 years and have never met and we're able to just kind of clear the day Mm-hmm. which allowed for this perfect weather window that we're graced with to be able to share this experience of letting your feet leave the ground for the first time together, you know? But all of these things that, that these special moments that happen, a lot of times they happen when there's no plan, you know, when you when you just kind of go with the flow. So that always brings a smile to my face as well. And to be able to share that experience with you the first day we met is, is pretty pretty fantastic. Yeah, no doubt. I've been following you for years and just been in awe at all the things you've been able to do over the years. But let's kind of start at the beginning. You know, what kind of formed this human that is Brian Morris? So you had a very interesting upbringing, correct? I did. I did. I was talking to you earlier and I asked you, you know, how you got into doing your own construction and stuff. And you said, well, I've moved 36 times, you know, when I was growing up. What is it that caused you to move 36 times? Obviously connected to the military or something like that, but I'll let you kind of explain. So my parents, they worked with the embassy and they traveled around as ambassadors for the States. My dad was also a Green Beret in the army. So we naturally moved around a lot as a kid. My older sister was born in Paris. I was born in a country in Southern Africa where I lived in, in Lesotho. We've, we've had a quite an interesting childhood, just moving around a lot and going from place to place. I spent most of my time in Virginia, moving from, from my, my mom's to my dad's to different places. They, they split when I, was, when I was about four or five. You know, I think we've all had an interesting childhood and there's a lot of ways to look at that. There's a lot of ways to look at life and look at your day and look at things that happen. The most important thing is that we look at how we can learn from our experiences. So 
for me, it was it was really rough at the time, moving all the time, always making new friends, always trying to adjust to a new environment. But now as as a young adult, I'm able to step into new environments all the time and have experience with change and, and can look at the world in a different way and connect with all sorts of different people because I had the experience of, of meeting people from all these different countries and counties and poor areas and rich areas and you know it's just the the more diverse your experience is as a child then the easier it is to relate as an adult i think yeah absolutely 36 different places you said so where all have you lived that's covering a lot of ground yeah i I went from we went from lesotho back to williamsburg virginia and then most of my childhood was in virginia so i was in Williamsburg, it was in Virginia Beach. I lived in Leesburg in Northern Virginia for a little while. Lived out in, in, in Stanton, Virginia, out in Swope for a little while. Went to school at Radford. I joined the military right when I was graduating high school. So from there, I went to Biloxi, Mississippi. And then from Biloxi, Mississippi to a place called Camp Blanding, which is in the middle of Florida. And then I did most of my military career out, out of uh, Richmond, Virginia. So I was in and out from there, wherever wherever they needed us for temporary deployments or exercises. Your father was a Green Beret, but you went the Air Force route. From our conversation earlier, you were involved with meteorology, correct? Yep. Yes. What a great transition to be able to use that knowledge that you got in the military with meteorology and apply it to the winds, right? To be able to start paragliding. Yeah, it was, a, it was a real blessing in disguise. I wanted to, I really had my eyes set on pararescue. So I was a oceanfront lifeguard when I was growing up in, in high school and in college. And so I really wanted to continue that and join the special forces group like my dad and, and just really push my limits and be able to be in an environment where I'm able to help people as well and use the skills that I already have. Thanks to my dad's military experience and background he pushed me to choose a career field within the military that would also give me an education. And so there was an opportunity to to join a weather squadron. And I chose that thinking, oh, this is great. I'll be outside all the time. Yeah. Which is the opposite. You're actually in a little room staring at computers all day long. Not as much licking your finger and putting it in there. No, there's a little, <laughs> there's a little bit of that, you know. There's a little bit of that. But if you understand the science of that, then you can feel when your finger's wet and you move your finger around where the wind's coming from, it's going to have a different temperature effect on your finger. So there's a lot of the the weather knowledge that I learned, especially down in Florida, when you don't have all these computers and you don't have internet access, you have to rely on looking at the sky and making observations and seeing how the clouds are moving and, and the height of the cloud layers and understanding the atmosphere to where you can just look at it and predict the weather. I mean, farmers have been doing this for hundreds of years when we didn't have internet and they had their entire, I mean, hence the farmer's almanac, but their entire career was based on what they could see with their eyes that was happening in the environment. Yeah. I mean, people had to have some way to try to predict things, right? Yeah. So. So there's a lot of knowledge in that as well, that that was a really cool thing to learn and it, to be able to now have a passion that I can use a lot of that knowledge is, is very and share it is is very beneficial and a, a really nice blessing. Yeah, absolutely. Because paragliding or hang gliding, you know, I never realized how inherently dangerous they were 
until I started looking into it and I was hearing, you know, these guys that are the best in the world at it, just talking about how it really is. You got to be on top of it and you have to have so much knowledge and awareness up there to, to stay alive. So hats off to you because you see, I can tell from the second I met you, you're like a very planned, you know, organized guy. You know, you know, you know what you're doing. I had no problem stepping off a cliff with you. So, so you are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, mean, I think it's a sport. It's a, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. Um, I think it's as safe as you make it. You know, I, I believe that it is an inherently dangerous sport in the, in the fact that you can put yourself in a lot of dangerous situations. But I also know pilots that have flown for 30 years and have never had an accident. So a lot of that comes into, it's a sport where you really have to be focused and you have to know that your training experience is, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's, it's a process where you really have to spend the time and learn. You can't, you can't rush through it. And there's a beauty in that too, right? And in, in not reaching for the highest fruit, but enjoying the act of, of climbing the tree. And so the more time you spend really learning and trusting the process, then the better you're going to be off in the long run. And it's a really interesting sport in the sense that it, it makes you, it makes you tune into nature. Mm-hmm. It also really challenges our ideas of, of go, go, go. And, and I'm going to, I want this to happen. Like it's a really big ego check, um, because you're totally reliant on the weather. You're completely being hugged by mother nature. And if you're not understanding the environment and then you're in, then you could get yourself in trouble. Yeah. And if you get cocky or you get complacent, those are really the two areas where people, where people tend to get hurt is where they take their, their subconscious drivers and that gets taken over into the sport. So I have a lot of friends that, that have had very safe, long careers. And I know lots of people that, that haven't as well. So it's, it's really about how you, how you live your life, you know? Well, I'm sure it applies even more to powerless flight, but they say, you know, you can be a bold pilot or you can be an old pilot. You know, you can't be both. Right. So. There's no old, bold pilots. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, I think it's like riding a bike. You have to be tuned into where you're riding your bike and how you ride your bike and how awake you are and how your mental state is in the morning because that all carries on to your activity or your bike ride. I mean, it's just, it's just kind of like life. If you wake up and you run out of bed and you're rushing out the door and then you try to launch off a mountain, like there's a chance that you probably miss something or you're not going to be totally awake and you, you have to really be awake and present in order to, to do things at your highest potential. And you can, I mean, if you go to work and you just rush out of the house, your whole day is probably going to be rushed and, yeah. and missing things and frustrating, you know? So, yeah, we, we were discussing that earlier. You said that, so Brian's built kind of a yoga studio slash temporary, uh, living situation while he works on a house. And you said you, you designed it all by, it was some kind of Indian practice you were talking about that kind of orients your day towards your most productive time, how you should wake yourself up in the morning. Can you kind of talk about what we were discussing earlier? Yeah. So Ayurveda is the, that's actually the oldest, it's called Ayurveda. It's the oldest medicinal plan on the planet. So for thousands of years, this has been practiced in the East, mostly in India. And it's, it breaks down body, body types, character types, these doshas that you're kind of born into and they balance how how you live your life based on what you 
what you eat, what environment you're in, how you're how you're moving. It also breaks down the seasons and the types of day, parts of the day that you should be doing certain things. And one of the things that really resonated with me from a few courses I did with my teachers was this Ayurvedic time schedule in that there's a time of day that your mind is is at its best. You're you're most productive during this time of day. So during that time of day, it's best for you to do goal-oriented things, which is from 10 to 2. And then from 2 to 6 is a is a whole different shift in your in your in your mind and in the day and and that's like a a time to be learning new things and and moving around and experimenting and and then moving towards this next part of the day, which is which is winding down, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have those nights where you just can't go to sleep because your mind is on fire. Yeah. So the philosophy is, you know, it's around six o'clock, it's time to eat dinner and slow down and maybe study something that you already know so you're not mentally ramping your brain up and then going to bed before a certain time. Because if you go to bed before 10, they say then you can through from 10 to 2, that's the time your your mind is also more productive. But it's a time when you're sleeping where you can work through and process all the things that happen during the day emotionally. And if you don't do that and you don't get that sleep, you might be more productive at night, but you're not processing all these things and you're 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 holding everything back, you know, and then creating more triggers for for upset later on. And then there's this time from two to six in the morning and then from six to ten in the morning where you're now slowly starting to wake up and, and it's mm-hmm. It's a time where a morning ritual is really important because you can kind of slowly get into that into your day and and basically warm yourself up for this productive time. But that's a time where you might have a, a morning yoga practice. For me, it's a morning yoga practice. It's a meditation. Um, I play. I usually play some music. Mm-hmm. I have a slowly make breakfast. I make some tea. I make a to do list. Take a shower. I go to the bathroom. You know, and then you're ready to hit the ground running. And and for some people that may be, you know, maybe just taking an extra 15 minutes to sip on your coffee and, and stop and just slow down, you know? Yeah. So the idea behind this property and this build was to, to build that first. Like the first thing I wanted to have was that sacred space, that meditation space. And then I have to work. I have to have these... Well, I don't have to, but my career to make enough money to be able to do the things I want to do. So the office that's connected to that is the generator for for money, which will be used as a tool to, to keep building the house. So the structure is all based on the Ayurvedic time schedule where I can wake up in the loft to the sunrise, do my morning meditations, go into a work mode, work, and then... And then by 6 p.m. or so, I can, I Relax, can retreat unwind. and unwind. And then, and then my house, I want to, to be that and be separate. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. So I can leave the phone and leave everything up there. Very cool. We'll get back to how you kind of started with, with your powerless flight. So you got out of the military, you went to college, traveled around the world in the meantime, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I actually know Brian is he reached out to me. I'd written a magazine article. I had the, the great blessing of be able, being able to do semester at sea twice. It's a college study abroad program that brings you to several different nations around the world while traveling on a ship. It's like a old retired 
cruise ship. No fancy balconies or anything like that, but it's converted into a college. And you're literally on this boat at this community of 700 or so students from all across the nation. Uh, every time it's a different community, obviously, because they're pulling kids from all different colleges. I believe over 300 different colleges usually form this community, this little city on this ship while you travel around the world and experience different cultures. So Brian had done it once and he was reaching out to me and saying, hey, you know, I saw that you actually did semester at sea twice. Do you think it's worth it? Is the experience different enough between the two voyages to, to make it worth it to do it twice? And I said, absolutely. Kept in touch ever since. From there, you know, I followed his, his flights, his businesses, and just want to kind of get the lowdown on how the heck you got into sending yourself off the side of a mountain. Did it start with hang gliding or did it start with paragliding? You know, it actually, it, it started with hang gliding, but it, it actually it did start with Semester at Sea. One of the, so with Semester at Sea, the first voyage I did was on the fall voyage. And did you go through Cape Town? Yeah, absolutely. So you got to, did you go Gorgeous. on Table Mountain? I unfortunately, we, uh, we were actually supposed to go skydiving that day and that didn't work out. And I said, perfect, I'll go to Table Mountain. Like it's my last day. That's what I was wanting to do. And we could have hiked the whole way up, but the like tram to like the halfway point was closed because the winds were like 50 miles an hour. Oh, yeah. I had a friend who uh, hiked to Lion's Head that day, and he was like, dude, be glad you didn't go up. It was way too windy. I'll sketch it out the whole time. So, Which is which is a wild experience. Yeah. By the way, hiking Table Mountain in strong winds, it's 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 pretty spectacular. Actually, I'd highly recommend it. But but yeah, you'd have to, you have to hike back down if the, if the tram goes, which is also a very interesting experience especially if you get stuck there at night yeah but there's yeah, a lot yeah. of people that do it like you if you sit in cape town and you watch table mountain you can see these little headlights of all the people that miss the tram and have to walk down the trail so it's kind of a cool cool thing but table mountain just for those of you that haven't been is this just beautiful beautiful rock plateau that looks over cape town and the two oceans and it's just it's just has so much energy and i being born in South Africa, that was one of the countries I was really excited about going back to. I just had so many amazing experiences in Cape Town and uh, around Table Mountain and climbing Table Mountain and sitting up there and coming up to Cape Town on the boat and just you just see out of the middle of nowhere this... By far the coolest view oh. from the boat of anywhere that we went. Just on the way in and on the way out, you're like, that's... That's real. Yeah, the energy there is it's amazing, man. And, and people have been worshiping, you know, the that energy for for many years. So it's it's cool to to be a part of it and to witness that. And when I got back from semester at sea, actually the second time I was sitting down with my dad and we were having a conversation on the porch and it was one of those moments in life where you're like, I don't know what I want to do next, you know, I'm finally free. I've, I've finished college accomplished a lot of goals, just traveled around the world twice, served the country. And now, now like, what's next? What do I really want to do? Where do I, I want to go from here? And, you know, he's, he, his advice was to think of some five-year goals, 10-year goals, 15-year goals. And we sat and smoked a cigar. And then I went inside and I was, I got caught up on YouTube and I was watching YouTube and I saw a video of this guy hang gliding above Table Mountain. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, man, That's that it. is unbelievable. Like, imagine being above 
one of the most iconic views in the world for hundreds of years. You know, the Cape of South Africa has been just a, the trade empire. Yeah. That people have, there's so much history and energy there, you know, imagine seeing that above it from the air. And I just, I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. I want to hang glide over Table Mountain. I'm sure that's not the goal that my dad was speaking of when we were talking <laughs> on the porch. Yeah, probably something a little different. Yeah. But immediately I called a, a friend I knew that was a hang gliding instructor and I said, man, I want to, I want to do this. I want to fly off the Table Mountain or fly above Table Mountain and and he called me back and was like, man, only there's only a few people that ever get that to do that. have ever tried it, yeah. And it's, it's really highly skilled and, you know, that's kind of far-fetched. But, if you know, if you want to do that, you need to start learning how to hang glide. So I booked a lesson that weekend. I met a guy named, named Zach Marzek. And I came into the hang gliding school right when it was closing. Mm-hmm. And I told him, I said, hey, man, I, I really want to learn to do this. I called this guy. He told me to come here and learn how to fly. What do I what do? I do? And I think I caught him off guard a little bit. And he said, Hold, just let me just finish what I'm doing and close up and then we can talk. And he closed down the, the shop and he said, let's go. We're going to go out on the dunes. I'm going to teach you how to fly. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you guys are closed. You know, I don't want to take your time. He's like, no. He's like, no, I got you. I feel, I feel how badly you want to do this. I'm going to take you out. So he took me out to the sand dunes and we ran down the dunes like for two, three hours. I broke the hang glider in half twice, just demolished it. And he would just had some little tubes and put it back together and was like, here, we're going to go again. No problem. And on the way back, he asked me, he said, hey, do you want to learn how to teach hang gliding? I said, dude, I just broke that thing over and over again. I probably owe you like hundreds of dollars for everything I broke. He said, no, no, don't worry about it. You've got the drive. And if you want to learn to fly, then you can come work here and we'll teach you how to fly and you can help with the beginner lessons. And I went home and I thought about it. I thought, man, this is it. Like, this is the time in life to do it. And this guy had two call. I think he had a degree or two. He hiked the Appalachian Trail. I mean, he had a lot of things he could be doing with life and a lot of these amazing places he could fly because he was a very experienced hang glider pilot. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I do this because I really... I can share flying with so many more people here and it's done so much for me. This is what I want to, this is what I want to do. I want to dedicate my life to. And where are you at at this point? This is in the Outer Banks in North Carolina. In Outer Banks. Okay. Um, Yeah. Place called Kitty Hawk Kites. And, and that moment for me was really special. I know I'm probably like getting off the, the track here, but because it, it was the first person I met that had a, had dedicated their life to a service Mm -hmm. that really, just captured the attention of what they what they really loved like he he, all he wanted to do was share flight with people and it just yeah it was inspiring to me i was like this is what that's what i want to do i want to learn this and i I want to share it with people so i just i ended up moving to the outer banks and learning to learning to teach hang gliding um and then that from there went to after a summer of teaching and, and hang gliding in the outer banks i went to a mountain in new hampshire called morningside flight park and got my first few mountain launches there and then from there it was all over i was just hooked and it all started with that dream of just like i want to see this amazing place from above that was it that was it It and what an odd thing because that was my i had never been skydiving before and i thought this is the place to do it like if i could see this place from above that would be amazing yeah and i did skydive over robin island i did that same thing in cape town and it's fascinating but skydiving there's a couple 
it, it's an amazing experience, but they say any any old rock can fall. Yeah. But when you can fly, that's true. It's different. And I used to, and it's kind of crude, but I used to say skydiving is like having sex for the first time. Mm-hmm. It's great, but it only lasts for a couple minutes. Yeah, exactly. So there's... unless you're uh, like proximity flying or right. something like that, <laughs> right? Wasn't there one of the really famous proximity flyers didn't he get really badly hurt in south africa on table mountain jeb corliss jeb mm-hmm. corliss that's exactly who i was thinking of because yeah. he he just cutting it too close and caught a rock right yeah i think he actually got hurt i believe he got hurt the first time and then he wanted to go back a second time and he did some really good wingsuit flights and then he just got a little cocky and was trying to pop these little balloons and, and the a balloon wrapped around like a foot or two over a rock uh-huh. And when he went to pop the balloon, he hit the side of the rock and oof. So I was thinking that was Table Mountain. Yeah, it's Table Mountain. Table Mountain's it's you know it's taken a lot of lives, and you just have to respect it. You just have to, you have to respect nature and and balance your you know balance your your ego. Mm-hmm. That guy's lucky he's he's not obliterated from that experience. It's true. And then the other thing that I I think is very important and it. When I actually did go to Table Mountain or get, go to South Africa, it was heavy in my mind. Is when you when you go to a place, you have to also respect the locals and the other people that are doing adventure sports there. Because if people are having a lot of accidents, then what in turn happens is that the community sees it and they say this is a dangerous thing, and then they don't allow it anymore. Exactly. And so, so you got to be on your game for everyone. You got to be on your game for everybody. And you got to respect the people that are there. I mean, if you just show up and you decide to do something dumb and you get hurt, then you might ruin the chances for anybody to ever fly that mountain, you know, or to have that experience. And that's, that's just totally selfish, you know. So there's a lot of things that go into the flying and, yeah. No doubt. So you're in New Hampshire. From New Hampshire, how do you get to Chattanooga? Because you've been based in Chattanooga for quite a while now. So in that same time period of figuring out what I wanted to do, I would apply for like nine serious jobs, career-oriented jobs, you know, where you're going to have a salary and probably work 40, 80 hours a week and Mm -hmm. require a college degree. And then I would apply for one really fun one. Mm -hmm. So I'd say, okay, I want to go teach scuba diving in Thailand or I want to become a mountain guide in Peru or maybe a a hang gliding instructor. Maybe I could work at Lookout Mountain Flight Park and and help run their marketing department. And So I put these fun applications out and I had... My job offer from Deer Valley in Utah, working at one of their bars. Okay. And the hang gliding and paragliding there is is incredible. And so I thought, okay, I've got $1,000 in my pocket. I packed all my stuff. I started to head out to Utah. There was a a girl there that I had um, met on semester at sea and had really hit it off with. And so I thought, okay, this could be an interesting adventure. And on the way there, I got a call from Lookout Mountain flight park in Chattanooga and they had said, Oh, we saw your application and we really need some help and would love to interview you. And I said, okay, well maybe I can squeeze down there and talk with these guys and then I'll have a spring or summer job lined up. And I came down here and really just fell in love with the place. The fall colors were changing and it's just a really special community. It's the largest hang gliding school in the world. And the owner, his name is Matt Tabor, sat down with me and he said, I want you to work here, but I want you to start like next week. I said, no, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to Utah. I'm going to go do this for the winter and kind of chase this other 
yeah other uh romantic ideal of a you know learning to fly and the whole thing there and he said okay well i'll give you a free place to stay and um, I'll let you use any hang glider that you want here and I'll teach you everything you want to know about flying or running a flight school and I'll really make it worth your while. And so I thought about it and I, I had my first soaring flight that evening. So a soaring flight is when you stay up longer than just a, a fun run down the mountain. So where you normally would launch off a mountain with no lift or no thermals or wind um, blowing in that you might only be in the air for seven minutes. I was in the air for almost two hours, just soaring over Lookout Mountain, and I, I was like, I was crying, man. It was such an amazing experience that I just I landed and I was like, I'm in. You got me. I'm, yeah, I'm gonna move here. So I unpacked my car and I made my phone calls to Utah and said I'm not coming. And it's been a whirlwind ever since. I understand it. It's a gorgeous place. I've been hiking in Cloudland Canyon, not far from here, many times, and it's. It's always gorgeous and this this whole valley here you know i could see how it'd hook you yeah and after experiencing flight earlier today i get it we caught a little thermal kind of rode it up for a second before we saw the storm coming in and it was it was amazing to just you know emulate what the birds you see out there are doing is just like nothing else yeah and we got to fly with with birds you know we got to be totally immersed in nature with a wild animal and what you may not have realized is we were helping each other so mm-hmm. we actually like became a team with this group of birds they were watching where where we flew and how we were moving in accordance to the thermal and the wind and we were watching them and working together we found the core of a thermal and we were able to get up towards the clouds and you know and they're going for a glide to to go find food or or to move where they need to move for the day and and they're helping us just have this amazing experience with nature. So it's cool to have that intimate experience with a wild animal, you know? It's just fascinating to me. No doubt. And I felt like I was in good company. Uh, your neighbor, Kelly, is apparently just a champion in the paragliding and hang gliding community. So knew I was up there with good company. Yeah. So that was, that was pretty cool as well. Yeah, yeah. That, and that was another thing that really made me stay in Chattanooga. I just met so many like-minded people in the hang gliding community. And Kelly, I have another friend, Adrian, that just from day one, we just really became like brothers and Mm -hmm. have stuck with each other for years and have just really grown a relationship that was kind of like the relationships that happened on Semester at Sea. You know, we we were on a ship for six months and there was no internet, there was no phone service. And you're, you're forced to be present with people and to have real conversations. And that's the exact reason why it was like the best time in my life. Because I don't know about you, you seem like the same type of guy. I, I was, you know, I didn't go to sleep till three o'clock in the morning. I'd be up in, in the morning ready to go. Because when I woke up, I thought this is, this is the best place I've ever been. Yeah. Just the little community that you form on the ship, not not to mention the destinations you're going to, but I love being on the ship. Same. You know, there is so many people to talk to and, you know, you're not watching TV, like you said, you're, if you're doing something, you're playing cards with people or you're playing music or you're, you know, just Connect, enjoying connecting. each other's company. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you'll get that a lot on this podcast. I'm, I'm really interested to listen to what you're doing. It sounds like a really cool adventure to, to hear the commonalities in all the communities because you're you're meeting people that are in these 
wild, far out lifestyles that are so dedicated to what they're doing and passionate about their sport. Um, that the communities that form around that become very special, you know, and those people have bonds that, that a lot of people don't get to experience. And it's, it's a real, it's a real blessing. It's really cool. So I'm very excited to see, you know, to hear, to listen to, to some of your stories and adventures that come from your, your adventure. I appreciate it. So far, it's been a great time. Everyone has a lot of fun talking and yeah, just I've met some great people over the years that I feel like their stories haven't been told and I'd love to be the one that gets it out there. So uh, I think it's going to be a whole lot of fun. Yeah. And hopefully I uh, pick up some more life experiences like today. So yeah. You talked about Ayurveda is what you called it earlier. Ayurveda. Um, Ayurveda. I knew that was a little off. Ayurveda earlier. So obviously you traveled on semester at sea. You guys probably went to India as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's kind of the root of looking into these Indian practices or if it's more uh, something that developed from your passion for yoga. So so where did yoga come into play in your life? Because it's something that's been you know important in my life probably about four years now. I've been pretty dedicated, not so much lately, need to get back to it, but Yoga has just made a huge difference in my life. And I've talked with several others, you know, in general, successful people seem, seem to have a good yoga practice. So where did it come into play for you? So for me, it was a, it was a real blessing. And I, I think this is another experience that people could look at and say, oh man, I'm so sorry you had that experience and that sucks. And I had a hang gliding accident where I was coming into land. I was actually filming for the tiny house nation TV show. And I was supposed to land the hang glider right in front of my house. And I've landed and launched this glider hundreds of times and know the field and know the conditions. And it was just the universe kind of smacking me upside the head and telling me to slow down in life. But I landed in a gopher hole and my foot stayed in the hole and my leg kept going. So I actually, they called it a complete dislocation, but I, I tore my foot off my leg essentially. Um, and I remember falling and over. And this was for the TV show? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty wild. I fell over and then I looked at my foot and I, it, was, it was just hanging on by a thread of, of skin. Mm. And I thought, but I didn't feel anything. It did, I just felt like I just tripped and fell over. So was, the nerves didn't... No, I was slapping myself and I was like, I feel that. Why don't I feel this? Adrenaline, adrenaline is a hell of a drug. Let me tell you, oh, there's it's no doubt. Incredible. I've had some hellacious motorcycle crashes, and yeah. it's like, well, how am I not hurting right now? Right. And so I tried the physical therapy thing, and it helped a little bit. But you know, my doctor that put my foot back together essentially told me I never walk again without a cane, and that the limited ability of my walking would totally depend on the amount of dedication and focus I had in the next six months in my, in my rehab. Well, the Obamacare program I was on only gave you three months and then they cut mm-hmm. you off. And so after three months, I'm sitting here, my foot's still not like barely attached and I can't walk and I got cut off from my program. So I went to a yoga studio. It was called hot yoga plus at the time in Chattanooga. It's now Southern soul yoga. And my friend Heather owns and the yoga teacher that was there I was asking her about privates and, and she said, you know, I think you should just come into my class and I'll put you in the corner and you can hold onto the wall and I can help re-engineer my classes 
to provide more foundation and structure for your foot. And I think this could be a really good practice for you. So I urge you to come and keep coming and, um, and let the instructors know about your injury. So I'd go in there with a boot on and I, I felt really good afterwards. Like my body in general, my mind was more clear. It's, it's a, I mean, you've been there in times where you're depressed and you're, you're so focused on everything that's going on in your life that you forget to realize that you're a living human that can breathe and, you know, we're blessed to be alive. And there's so many amazing things that are happening and we can get in our own head. So it helped a lot with the mental stability. I was able to to go into a class and, and take my boot off and then wear a hiking shoe and in a, in a couple months, I was able to walk out of the studio and walk 100 feet and then 200 feet and 300 feet and walk around the building. And I remember the first time I walked out of the studio and ran around the block and it was like, I'm just about broke down crying because I was like, this is the, this is it. Like, I'm going to walk again. I'm going to fly again. I'm going to have these experiences of life. I just keep, keep at it. And yoga from there has just grown. And, and I've learned that the, in the beginning, it's a lot of the, exercise is what pulls people in the flexibility and the strength and the mobility that yoga offers in the practice of asana and then there's you start to learn that there's a lot more to it than that that the things that are actually happening within your brain and within your body are so beneficial to you and the interconnectedness of of your life and with all beings starts to become more and more evident the more you practice and so yoga has just been a journey it's been a spiritual journey it's been a a mental journey. It's been a journey getting to know my body better. And it's, it's probably one of the most beneficial things that, that I've came across in my lifetime. I'm just really blessed. And it allowed you to get back to doing what you love, right? You're Correct. able to fly again. Yeah. So did this accident happen before or after One Sky Project? So that was right before One Sky Project. Right before. So I was planning the One Sky Project when this happened. Actually, no. Let me let me go back. The One Sky Project happened. It was about a year. We started planning it about a year after the accident. Okay. So the the accident was in part a catalyst. So the way it's it's funny, man. It's seven years ago. My mind is like yeah. trying to remember the the timeline here. But I spent a lot of time on my couch with my foot and trying to figure out how to how to take my feet and pick up marbles and put them in cups and you know during that time of solitude really kind of rearrange my life and at the time I was working doing my dad and I were running a cigar business that was extremely successful and running 100 miles an hour not spending much time with family or friends and just living the hustling life, you know, the mm-hmm. American dream or whatever, trying to make yeah. as much money as possible. And I had the foot accident. My dad had a heart attack and we just realized, well, we need to just slow down. And, and in that time, I, I, I just reflected a lot and thought about what do I really want to do? You know, what, what's really important? All these people showed up at the hospital that I didn't expect to come. Mm-hmm. And I realized I didn't, I didn't spend any time serving my community. All these people that were there for me, I wasn't there for them. I wasn't there for myself. I wasn't helping anybody. I wasn't sharing hang gliding, sharing my passions with people. I was, I was solely in the cigar business in order to build something. You know, I mean, I really enjoy cigars and I'm passionate about it, but I think that I, the drive of success took over to the point where it almost killed me. 
Yeah. Um, and so I had a really good friend that was a mentor. His name was Kit Martin that died during that time. Zach Marzak, who had taught me to fly also was killed in a, in a hang gliding accident. And these, these things that happened really made me think about life and what it's all about. And what do you spend your years doing when you don't know how long you have left to live? Mm -hmm. Um, and the, the best thing you can do, I think is serve your community with the facilities that you have. And for me, that's sharing free flight with people and sharing the things that I love. And so the one sky project was born. I was coming back from Kit's funeral and we stayed at a friend's place. His name is Mark Radloff, who's a paraglider pilot. And he was from South Africa and really wanted to go back to South Africa to, to go to these different schools and places that he struggled through his life being a part of. And he wanted to just go back and take kids for tandems and take them flying. And I wanted to go to South Africa and, and fly over Conquer, Table Mountain. Conquer you know, Table Mountain. Finally get this dream. And my two friends that had passed away, that they were a big part of of motivating me to do that. And so I thought, this is perfect. We should create something where we can go to these places and give back and uh-huh. also experience them, right? But to give back to the communities that are serving us. You know, you travel and you see these amazing places and you just kind of take when you're there. So it's the idea was to, to flip that coin and, and try to serve the community. So the, the One Sky Project became a journey in figuring out how to do that. And we found some different nonprofits that were already doing amazing things and connected with a videographer team that wanted to go film um, nonprofits and share these amazing things that nonprofits were doing through through video and through film and sharing these their messages with the world. And so we teamed up and we're, the idea was to do a, a flying documentary um, taking children and or- from orphanages or schools and taking them hang gliding and paragliding, as well as immersing ourselves within these communities and creating fundraising films for the groups that are already know what needs to happen on the ground and are, you know, they, they know what the communities need. So that was kind of the, the birth of One Sky Project was, you know, the connection of the ideals of, of service and sharing and connecting with these different people from around the U.S. and kind of creating a program together. That's amazing because you're just doing it all for charity, right? I mean, you guys aren't really making money off of this. It's just all about the good of your own heart. Yeah, we, we are all still probably trying to recoup the funds that we spent. Um, we were really blessed in the fact that we did a big fundraiser through Kickstarter. We raised probably about $30,000 to, to do this trip. Awesome. Um, but bringing five to seven people through Africa on a Land Rover for four months with $30,000 is really not a lot of money. No. Um, we were on a penny budget. We were eating... Yeah, South Africa is not as, as cheap as you might think. So. No, we're... You know, and you, you spend a lot of money in fixing the ding. Never buy a gasoline Land Rover ever. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I've never had one, but I have heard many, many people have had Land Rovers that was the, say it is nothing but problems. The advice we got in Africa over and over, oh, you should have bought Toyota. They, yeah, or diesel. 
Yeah. Right. So we spent a lot of money break, just fixing the truck and getting us all there. And I think we, we each probably put in around five to $10,000 of our own. But the big thing was the time, you know, taking, taking yeah. several months off to do this was, was a big sacrifice for, for the whole team. So, yeah. Cause in America, especially time is money, right? Yeah. For most people, it's all about, you know, how much money can I make in this amount of time? That's amazing, man. And you were able to conquer Table Mountain, kind of uh, fulfill that dream. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, take a lot of kids that would never have gotten the opportunity for free flight. Yeah, it was, a, it was a really amazing experience. I had a pretty funny thing happen. It's a very good lesson in teamwork. That whole trip was, I, I'd been part of sports teams, but really getting in a Land Rover with five people that you don't know very well and traveling through one of the most wild continents in the world is a is a really good way to become a good team member. Yeah, um, I was going to say, you guys are probably best friends to this day, huh? We, we have some really strong friendships, and we, you know, we had our fair share of arguments and things in between. Of course. Um, Tough conditions. But I had a, a moment. There was a chance to fly over Table Mountain in the beginning of the trip, but it conflicted with our schedule. And it came to the point where it was, do I, do I stay back and let the team go on and try to do this? Or do I, or do I just go with the team and just put it away? Cause these, these windows of time as you experience today are very, yeah. they're very slim sometimes. And, and then to do this flight, you may only get that window once every few months and it may only be two hours. And if you're not available, have the skill level enter there, you're not going to get it. I mean, people have lived there for years and never been able to do this flight. And I had to, for the first time in life, make a decision that the, my, my ultimate goal, my ultimate dream in life, my just, what I've been dreaming about, you know, for the past few years, I've, I'm giving this up for something greater mm-hmm. and what came of that and the experience that I had were so powerful. You know, this is the first time you really put yourself aside for somebody else. This is like the universe testing me. And so that was a really good, a good lesson to learn. Mm-hmm. And later I ended up staying in South Africa another three months just to try to, to get that flight. Everybody had already left and I'd, Canceled my flights three times, overstayed my visa, and then on the 28th attempt was able to to do the flight I always wanted to do, so it was, it was pretty spectacular. Talk about some dedication. It was, Hanging in there. Yeah. It got so bad to, to the point that whenever there was a northwesterly wind blowing and I would be up there, people would come and they'd see me waiting and then they would dr- turn around and drive home because they're like, oh, Brian's here. It's not going to work today. <laughs> It's, it's like I was like You're a bad, bad luck opening. charm, you know? Yeah. We had videographers that were going to follow and were so excited about the project and they'd wait up there with me all day for two, three days and then they'd say, no, I'm, I'm out. This isn't going to happen. Well, I'm glad you made it happen, man. Yeah, man. It, absolutely amazing. But before that happened, I had, you know, the whole One Sky project and all the things that, that happened during that trip that were so much more powerful and more important than my own little desire that I'd built up in my head, you know, had to happen. Um, and so, um, yeah, I just feel very grateful for that whole journey and the whole process. Absolutely. If you want to learn more about it, I know we could talk about Africa for months, but get, go to oneskyproject.com and they, we have the videos of the different organizations we worked with and the amazing things they're doing on the ground and from an after-school care program in a township in South Africa to an orphanage in Tanzania. We worked with some 
girls that were victims from the Joseph Kony War in Uganda and Sudan and had some just unbelievable experiences there as well. And there's just so many amazing people on this planet that are doing great things, you know, so. There are. For all the bad in the world, there's a lot of good, too. Yeah. I think Nelson Mandela said that. Really? Yeah. I was just... <laughs> yeah. Is Mandela or Tutu? Yeah. I don't know. One of them said, you know, there's a lot of bad people in this world, but there's more good. Exactly. You just have to see it. Probably Mandela. All the suffering that guy went through. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so that's an unreal experience as well. If you haven't read The Long Walk to Freedom or been to South Africa and seen Robben Island, that's a highly recommended. Absolutely. I didn't make it to Robben Island. I was only, You're only there so much time on semester at sea. So right. I went to probably butchering this. Is it Pillensburg or Palanisburg? It was past Pretoria and all that. Plattensburg Bay? It's like a safari area. Okay. Yeah. It was near Sun City. There was like some casino... I don't remember. I don't Near know. that area. Yeah. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. But it took me away from Cape Town, which was gorgeous. Sure. I wish I had spent the whole time there. I spent three months in Cape Town attacking the uh, the Table Mountain dream, and I still want to spend more time there. I mean, every day I was exploring the city, and there's just so much. There's so much culture and diversity and so much learning to be in a place that has so much history and difference from from here you know so yeah people don't realize south africa you know a lot of culture they actually have i think 11 different languages quite a few yeah so very diverse place because you have all the tribal languages and then of course like afrikaans english Mm -hmm. dutch i guess dutch is pretty close to afrikaans yeah i mean it's that's a lot of from the migration of the europeans down into southern africa a lot of these different languages were influenced and Mm -hmm. i mean in south africa there was pretty much every hundred years there's a different it was colonized by a different european group so it's it's a it's a fascinating place no doubt so you were able to complete your your dream there and then you came back and you're you've been working on this for several years expanding this kind of tiny home vacation rental community so it's called live a little chat and these little tiny houses that you've built yourself by hand right they're really cool and they look over the most amazing view of the valley actually we literally launched off of the little hill out into the valley earlier yeah so live a little has been a really amazing journey it it started i think in in reverence to the idea of moving so many times i was looking online and i had seen a video of a guy that built a house out of a fire truck in somewhere in Europe and I thought wow that's the idea if you build something on wheels it doesn't matter how many times you move you never have to pack again and unpack and so I thought okay this is a great idea to build a house on a trailer and when I started building I was contacted by Tiny House Nation who had just started their program and we decided to do a a show with them and that introduced me to my business partner now his name is Joe Kiro. Joe had seen the show and seen some things online and he wanted to have a tiny house for him and his wife, but his wife wasn't ready to jump into the tiny house scene right away. They were having kids and starting a family. And so he was thinking about having a tiny house as a, as a vacation home. And I wanted to be able to share tiny living with people, but also have my own place to stay. And while I was working in the cigar industry, I was traveling a lot. So I thought this is perfect. I can have a home. It's on wheels. I can move anywhere. And when I'm traveling, the people, other people can stay there, which will help fund the lease or the mortgage or wherever it is. And then when I come home, 
I can kick them out and I can have my, my place back, you know, and I'm not having to spend money at hotels and paying money for rent for a place that I'm not physically there. And so my partner had actually, he had owned a trampoline park and had hurt, okay. hurt his knee jumping on his trampoline <laughs> and I had just broken my ankle hang gliding. And so we just sat down and had some wine and talked for hours and hours or sitting there with our crutches and just came up with this idea to do this tiny house vacation rental business and and rent our houses out while we weren't using them and share the joys of tiny living with people that didn't have the opportunity. Because at this point, you could either spend $40,000 building your own house, you could spend $80,000 buying one, or you just watch the shows. There was no way to just try your shoes on before you buy them. Yeah, so exactly. The Live a Little became this this collective idea of of just sharing this and my house was built by a lot of friends i i can't really take any credit for it it was it was a community build i had a lot of people that helped and i don't know what the heck i'm doing building i've just watched a few youtube videos and hit the hammer a couple times the wrong way until you figure out how to do it right and over time live a little became this this beautiful resort on top of this mountaintop overlooking Chattanooga. We just got lucky with finding the right piece of land and, and developing it in a way that allows people to more intimately experience nature with each other. So now we have four tiny houses. We're working on the fourth one. And they kind of circle around the best bluff spot on Lookout Mountain to where each house you look out, you have your own view. We have really terrible internet on purpose. <laughs> we, the idea is to let people interact and have these intimate moments with each other and with nature and to sit down and enjoy the sunset and have a glass of wine and we provide a s'mores kit so you can sit around a fire we only have one fire pit we actually used to have three mm -hmm. and we noticed that everybody would be having their own fire and it was totally disconnected so we took two fire pits away and left one in the middle we'd notice the guests would start having dinner together and, and getting to know each other and so we just have this, the whole thing is revolved around one fire pit and watching people come together and get to know people from all around the world. Is, it's been really, really a cool thing. Yeah, it's an amazing place. Uh, really has a good energy about it. I could see how, you know, the people who are going to come here, I feel like are going to be people that want to connect with, with others and, and enjoy this beautiful place. So I love the hot tub on the edge of the cliff too. That's, that's a pretty nice touch. Yeah. That's, it's, that's pretty hard to beat. Joe says we have a, uh, a cool filter. So 99% of our guests are just really rad people that want to try something different. You know, we get a, we get a lot of people that want to just do something different. They want to go on a birthday or anniversary or a honeymoon and they don't want to stay in a hotel. You know, they don't want to be surrounded by a bunch of people and eat some rubber eggs and exactly. you know, sleep in a bed that 300 people just did whatever they did. And, you know, it's been a really cool thing to offer too. We've had a lot of weddings and a lot of proposals and People are taking their best, their most important time of the year and their most important three days of their calendar year, and they're coming here to just relax. And so it's, it's a cool experience to share. Outside of building this tiny house vacation rental community, you also are the Southeast ambassador for Aganorsa Leaf Nicaraguan Cigars. So you were saying earlier that you were in the cigar business with your father. And you guys were kind of repping several different brands. 
But how did you bring it all back to being kind of an exclusive? Are you technically a distributor for Aganorsa? I'm, I'm like a brand ambassador. Um, okay. So I'm building the brand in the Southeast. And the owner of Aganorsa, Eduardo Fernandez, is my dad's best friend of all time. Growing up uh, together, they went to prep school and um, just stayed in touch their whole life. And Eduardo uh, was a very successful businessman and when he tried to retire found that he was just really kind of bored with retirement and and his wife was Nicaraguan he's Cuban and so he went to Nicaragua and just found a really big opportunity in growing tobacco and he's went back to Cuba and and got some advice and really brought some of the best growers and agronomists and just all a lot of the tobacco knowledge from Cuba back to Nicaragua with the idea of creating a traditional Cuban brand with Nicaraguan tobacco and Nicaraguan soil, which is so diverse and special. It's very similar to Cuba, but it's it's even more. Um, there's there's so much more you can do with it. It's such a, a different landscape, and he's been really really successful over the years in growing these amazing old Cuban seeds into very delicious Nicaraguan leaves. He's created a kind of an empire down there and it has been one of the largest manufacturers of cigars for lots of different private brands and they had always had a private well an Aganorsa line it used to be called Casa Fernandez we've always had Mm -hmm. our own brands as well but the emphasis wasn't always there and as our tobacco got better and the quality control became really really good and Eduardo just kind of hit the jackpot with the blending and with the rolling and figured everything out he called my father and I and, and asked us to kind of help grow the program again. And we started working with an old friend of ours in the industry, Terrence Riley, mm-hmm. who took over as national sales manager. And they have had some really, some of the best reps in the country. But um, we, we the whole company together has been working as a team to just create uh, some of the best cigars in the world. And over the past four years... Just in my territory, we're almost a thousand percent in growth. Wow! So a thousand percent, a thousand percent. Yeah, it's that's amazing. It's it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild when you really just dedicate your heart to doing something. What can come from it? And again, I think it was a lot of it for me and in, in my territory was looking at it from a different lens. You know, I'm I'm looking at tobacco and the cigar industry now with something I'm really passionate about. I think we have some of the best tobacco in the world and the cigar industry has been a real blessing for a lot of people. Like we've had a lot of suffering this year. We've had a lot of heartache and struggle and and people need a way to commune. People need connection. People need to have something that they can enjoy together. They need something that they can meditate with. They need a release at the end of the day, and mm-hmm. cigars provide that for people. And cigar shops in general are these super cool little communities where you have people, rich, poor, white, black, whatever, coming in and enjoying an art and sitting down with each other and learning from each other and connecting and having this meditative experience over what's really a vegan organic product. You know, it's just pure from the ground it's from the earth it's a really special special thing and i think a lot of people overlook when they think about smoking cigars or tobacco and to be able to share that and bring more people into the industry with family and with some of what i think is again the the best tobacco on the planet 
I think that passion keeps being transferred, you know? It's like a yeah. tr- the transfer of excitement is there, and it's, it's so much more fun building something with that passion and excitement around something special rather than just trying to succeed and make money and, you know? Yeah. It's just like sommeliers, you know? They're really passionate about wine. Right. You know, it's a similar type thing. It's like some people just have a passion for turning these these natural things that come out of the ground and just going through this long process and making it the best in the world. Yeah. And, and a lot of it, just the same with tobacco, has a lot to do with the actual place where you're growing it, right? Sure. So there's something about that, I guess, volcanic soil in Nicaragua? Yeah, so we didn't get to do a tasting, but I, a lot of times what we'll do is we actually roll up just straight up leaves from the different farms and we'll smoke them individually one by one and you get the different flavors and the subtle characteristics of the tobacco from different regions Mm -hmm. Uh, when you smoke a cigar you people in the beginning they say oh all these cigars taste the same because they can't really deconstruct it and say oh this spice is coming from here the sweetness is coming from here the cream is coming from here Mm -hmm. and so a lot of times we'll break down, we call them the agonorsa experience. So we do this in a lot of cigar shops, but we'll, we'll break down and we'll smoke each leaf one by one. And then we'll actually put them together. So you're actually smoking several leaves at a time and uh-huh. you get the whole flavor, the whole balance across your tongue and your palate. And people really enjoy the experience, but what's happening, which is very interesting, that kind of brings all this stuff together is they're forgetting everything else that's going on in their mind when they're doing this. And trying to focus on that specific. They're focusing on the different parts of their tongue, that they're tasting something, and it's such a meditation. It's like, it is yoga, in Mm -hmm. a way. It's movement and breath and and focus. And at the end of two hours of just playing with tobacco, you feel great. Mm -hmm. You know? And it's not not just the leaf, it's the the experience. experience. Yeah. As a rep, you've been traveling around, but obviously COVID kind of stalled that. But you were saying when we talked the other day that you felt like, you know, maybe you could have traveled because you were seeing this phenomenon among cigar smokers, or at least in the cigar shops, that that community wasn't getting COVID, right? So for some odd reason, cigar smokers, which they were saying that tobacco use was one of the kind of triggers for COVID. But in fact, it seemed like cigar smokers weren't getting COVID at the frequency of other people. So you had found a study, right? That kind of endorses that same idea. I was blown away because I would have a friend here that's a doctor and works in the COVID ward in Chattanooga. And she would give me the reports every couple of weeks what was really happening and how severe it was and what I should be doing. And, you know, should I be wearing a mask? Should I be carrying a hand sanitizer with me? Do I need to wash every piece of cardboard before it enters the house? You know, and, and the severity and the intensity of it was wild. It was rampant. And a lot of the communities that I was seeing, people were getting it left and right, the hang gliding community, just everywhere. And I would call my cigar accounts that had stayed open And they're like, oh, you know, we've got the lounge open. A lot of them were just operating as normal. The guys don't want to, they don't want to change what they're doing. They've seen all sorts of things in life and they're not changing. And, you know, we haven't heard anyone that's gotten sick. A lot of people didn't believe it. How do you not believe this? What do you, the whole world is being affected right now. And, and for some reason, the cigar shops, a lot of the shops weren't, weren't affected. 
And there's a French study that was done. You can Google it. That I believe it was like 26% of people in, in France were smokers, according to the survey. Yeah. And only like 4% of those people had been affected by COVID, where the numbers of the general population that, that didn't smoke was extremely high. And so the theory that the research did was that, that nicotine attached itself to the same protein receptors in your skin that, that COVID also attached to. And so it kind of, the idea is that it kind of created this barrier, you know? So I really wanted to create a marketing campaign around Aganorsa cures COVID, but nobody else on the team thought that was a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. Taking it over the line. It didn't happen. You know, so I don't know if that's true or not. I actually didn't travel for most of the pandemic for the very reason of without scientific evidence, I don't want to be the, the, the transmitter spread. Yeah. Right. I don't want to go to one cigar shop and have my hands on cigars, give it to somebody. They put it in their mouth, they smoke it. Then I shake hands with everyone, go to another store, do the same thing. Now it doesn't matter how careful you are. There's, there's a transmission of hands to mouth, hands to mouth, left and right everywhere. So I actually stayed home most of the time and it was a real, it's very challenging, but in the challenges there's lessons, right? And there's lots that you can learn from those challenges. And I think that, people that really took that to heart and learned how to spend more time with their family, learned how to spend more time with themselves, learned how to make their businesses more efficient. How do you sell cigars when you can't see the retailers? How do the retailers build a brand when they, a lot of them are closed and the doors are closed and they can't see their consumers? How do we keep people still from buying from the stores when now they can just buy online? And a lot of us really worked together and found ways to to build the industry and the industry has actually grown quite a bit. Like, during COVID, during tobacco COVID. grew. That's crazy. And our grand brand, I mean, we would market our brand straight to the consumers instead of through, instead of through the retailer, the retail mm-hmm. shops. It was like a lot of social media, a lot of contacting people directly and saying, Hey, look, this is what we have. This is where it is. This is where you should go shop for it. And then that in turn, I mean, you can see that social media has its benefits and its disadvantages for sure. But one of the things during COVID was people are always on their phones. So they were able yeah. to they were able to see this and be reminded, hey, there's something I can do that calm my mind. And um, I had a lot of people would go and they they knew people getting into cigars. They were like, I, I need an experience. I need a meditation at the end of the day. My kids are running around. My wife's driving me crazy. I just want to sit on my porch and light a cigar and like relax. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of new smokers and then we had people that were smoking cigars before. Now they had time because they were home Yeah, to smoke a couple cigars a day or time. smoke more. And so the industry's grown 20, 30% in the last couple of years. And it's actually been a real blessing. And for me, it's been a way to learn how to help grow the brand without having to be in the stores and help the retailers who are suffering because they don't have the foot traffic anymore, you know, that they used to have. Now I think things are kind of speeding up back to what it used to be, but I'm looking at business a lot differently. You know, I'm finding new ways to market and new ways to, to just help our customers out. So, yeah. Kind of to bring everything back around, what's next for Brian Morris? Do you have any big ambitions, anything new that you're, you're trying to pursue? Right now, the, the challenge is how to slow down in life, slow down daily, slow down, slow down everything and kind of see what's in front of you. You know, I think some of the best moments of my life have been when I've been able to be completely present with people and learn from others and be present with the moment and enjoy the experience of whatever you're being handed to you. 
And the more you fill your life up with all these goals and these things that you have to do, the less you're able to actually be in the moment and, and be present and, and, you know, enjoy what you have. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that the thing that I'm most dedicated to outside of, of growing the cigar business and Aganorsa and, and keeping the tiny houses going and sharing free flight wherever I can is it's actually another ancient Indian practice called Kirtan. Which is a, which is a group of us that get together uh, once a week and we we play music and we sing, and it's just a place where people can connect and and let go of whatever they're holding on to for the week and like singing for me and playing music has allowed me to tap into my soul and my body and 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 really for me tap into God and the, the essence of connectedness of all these of everything that you used to see as separate, you know, kind of seeing everything connected. So, yeah, so we've we've started this group in Chattanooga, this Kirtan group, and people have been coming every week. We have two, three, sometimes last night we had five new people show up. And it's this environment where we're just playing music and singing at the top of our lungs and chanting these old meditation mantras that have these healing characteristics and I've seen so much cool growth. We've seen people just break through emotional experiences and feel freedom and life changes through just this ancient practice of just getting together and playing music, playing and, music singing, and singing, you know? So that's kind of been a, a growing passion of mine is trying to help guide this process and this community in Chattanooga. Uh, there's been a few, few others that have really helped and the more we grow it, the more it just becomes something very special in its own community within itself. Brian introduced me to an instrument I had never seen before earlier. It's called a harmonium. Yeah. And he kind of gave me some of the background on that, how it kind of had Dutch roots. And then when they tried to spread Christianity to India, it took hold in India because it's it's kind of got that nice melodic long kind of notes it's actually using reeds right right so it's kind of perfect for yoga and that kind of thing you know mindfulness and kind of putting you in that place you want to be to be present so uh can you just kind of talk about how you got into that specific instrument and how that's kind of helped you with your your uh kirtan kirtan yeah yeah it's like so I, i call the harmonium a meditation machine so it's a it's an acoustic organ and it has these really beautiful drones that allow you to really, really allow somebody to sing and to let your voice be carried. And I grew up, I think a lot of us are actually shamed in our society for singing. You know, you look mm-hmm. at like American Idol and what do we do? We watch to see these people that are really good. And then we laugh at all the people that we think don't have a tune or a pitch. And it's, it's really damaging because singing is such an amazing practice. It's if you're in your car and you're just singing your favorite song on the top of your lungs, there's something happens that when you get to your, where you're going, your, your consciousness is shifted. You are in a totally different place. When you're in a, a concert, a rock concert or a dance party or something, there's just a feeling, there's an ecstatic vibe, you know, that happens. And we're stripping ourselves of that mm-hmm. by not allowing ourselves to have the freedom of singing. And when you actually, when you sing with other people, like your, your brainwaves start to work together and the energy is bigger and it's, 
I mean, you've been in a bar at 2 a.m. and everyone's singing that Journey song, you know, and holding on to each other. Exactly. And it's just something magic that happens every time, you know. There is. So um, I heard I heard a guy uh, named Sean Johnson play this harmonium in a yoga class in Asheville and watched him and his band tell this old African story. And in front of all these people they like had the people interacting with the story and dancing around and making animal sounds like little kids. And then they led it into a yoga class. And I just thought, I just thought there's something so magic about the ability to guide people into their child self where they can sing, dance, make animal sounds, move around in weird ways, you know? And I thought I, I need to, I need to learn from this, this guy. And I, if I ever learn, if I ever have a chance to learn that instrument, I'm going to learn. And then I got an email Two weeks later, I signed up for the emailing list, their, his mailing list, that there was a, a program called Bhakti Immersion. And so Bhakti is this ancient Indian practice or way of living really focused around love and music and the arts and sharing. It was a 10-day program mm-hmm. where all you did was use, pretty much use the right side of your brain. You know, we're always using the left side of your brain and we're always focused on achievement and productivity. And so the whole week was singing reading poetry, learning how to play a different instrument, listening to stories, drawing. I mean, it was just this really fascinating. Just um, using your creative brain. Yeah. And it was so fun. It was so good that I just, I bought a harmonium at the end of it. And I've been living in a school bus in the woods for the past three years, just playing the harmonium, you know, by myself and learning these mantras and, and different music and just having a really intimate spiritual experiments with myself with this instrument with the harmonium as a catalyst and so that kind of has led into into the yoga studio my my good friend that owns it heather and i had some moments where we were just playing and singing together and she would teach a a physical asana class and i would lead a little bit of music in the beginning and in the end and it grew to other people in the studio getting into music and getting mm-hmm. into buying harmoniums. And, and then next thing you knew, we had someone that came down. It was the teacher of, of my teacher, Heather's teacher's name is Balaram. And he just kind of lit the flame that was like, you guys need to do kirtan. You need to do it together. And every day for probably nine days, we did a, a small kirtan and more people would come and more people would come. And everyone was like, wow, that was so so much of an experience and that was so special and I want to sing more and I want to get together more and at the end of his time in Chattanooga we just decided we really need to do this we need to make a ritual of this and and have a community where people can can come and sing and and learn these these ancient you know meditation tools that have been around for thousands of years this is the catalyst so it's been a journey. It's been a really fascinating journey, and I'm looking forward to to just learning more. Yeah, there's a lot to be learned from, from the ancient Indian culture. It survived for this long. Obviously, they're doing something right. Yeah. No, it's, it's fascinating to think that one of my questions when I started learning this stuff is, where did these words come from, and where does the these ancient mantras come from? Uh, there are the Back in the day, people were... They were outside in nature all the time. Their whole mm-hmm. world revolved around nature. You know, they were tuned into the different frequencies and the feeling everything and seeing everything like it was like it was originally created. And 
the Sanskrit language or Sanskrit that was completely created about around words that would make you feel the way the word was supposed to sound. So in English, we have these words that are, this means this, this means that, this means that. But if you say the word in Samskrita, then you're supposed to feel the way the word is meant. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like the word peace, you know, in English, the, the sound peace, 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 it sounds like a snake or, or urinating, you know? And it's not a peaceful sound, but if you, if you, the word for peace in, in Sanskrit is shanti. shanti. And every, every culture around the world, what do they do? What do they say to their kids when they're trying to calm them down? It's, sh- it's this calming, shanti. calming mm-hmm. word. So the, using all the different parts of your tongue and your, and your mouth to make sounds that make you feel a certain way. So all the, the old mantras and the, the language of Sanskrit was, just created to make you feel and mm-hmm. feel in your body. And so just by chanting or singing these things over and over again, you're actually igniting the flame that's going to create emotion within yourself. So you actually start to feel and we don't ever take the time to just stop and feel. Yeah. So it's fascinating. I mean, they've done now in the last hundred years, they've done a lot of scientific studies of people doing different meditations and chanting. And, and there's so many results that, that show that, people with the chanting practice have, are much more peaceful. They're getting better rest. They're living longer. They're enjoying life more. They're just operating at a higher frequency. And people have known this for thousands and thousands of years. So it's, it's just fascinating that it's it survived and we have access to it. It's, and it's all mostly free, you know, but you have to search for it. Yeah. You know, you have to, they don't teach us this stuff in schools. Yeah, curiosity is an incredible thing. It's, it'll lead you to good places. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look at this this meeting, you know. I Just through the, the blessings that we've been given in life, we're able to connect with each other and stepping out, you know, stepping out of your comfort zone to talk to somebody you've never talked to before and ask them advice based on their experience mm-hmm. has led to, for me, one of the best things, journeys of my life was Semester at Sea. And you were a catalyst. I had never even physically met you you know yeah and then here we are 10 years later and you're creating something uh, you're about to go on this journey and i get to somehow be a part of it but we'd never met each other you know and it's just such a a lesson to be learned in like go out reach out to people ask questions connect and these beautiful things happen yeah i've always wanted i've been fortunate to meet some amazing people and and not meet some amazing people over the years, but connect with them in some way. And I've always kept people in mind. I always thought that I wanted to share people's stories somehow. So, you know, in college, I was thinking I wanted to do like documentary film and share people's stories that way. At one point, I thought about writing a book about people who have influenced my life and what their stories were. But then I thought, what better way than to just sit down and talk to them and let them tell their own story? Sure you know, and share that story with the world. Cause there's, there's some amazing people out there for all the boring people that are, are sitting at home. There's, you know, there's someone on the other side of the world getting after it and, and making their dreams happen. You know, and, and, and this podcast may be the flint to the fire for a lot of those people that are sitting on their couch that have been yearning for adventure or yearning for the catalyst in their mind to say, Hey, you can do this. You don't have to work this nine to five job. You don't have to build somebody else's dream. You don't have to have a huge house. You don't have to have all these things that don't make you happy to be happy. 
all you have to do is go out and live and you can minimize your life to to have that experience you don't you don't need a huge house and a huge mortgage and half your stuff doesn't need it to be heated and cooled yeah you know you don't need that big tax bill do you really need 30 acres of land and a lot of things that people see as problems are just inconveniences right right it's like there's real problems you need to take care of and things that are essentials and then there's things that are just conveniences that you can you know maybe you got to sacrifice some conveniences to do what you really want sure and the, and there's the you know what do we really need we need food we need water and we need shelter and the earth has given a, people that for since the earth's been around people have survived without all of the little oh shit i don't have wi-fi you know my phone's broken oh man my computer broke oh my car like the, the we ran out of gas on the east coast what are we going to do people have been surviving for years on this planet everything given to us mm-hmm. we really don't need that much at all it's just this want for more we just have this desire for more and more and more and once you can kind of let go of that and see all the beautiful things that are in front of you i mean it's just such a life-changing experience so that brings us to a good point what advice would you give a young brian morris if you if your current self could give your say 17 year old self advice what would you tell i would say question everything every life lesson or every opinion question it think about ask yourself maybe the question where do you want to be when you're 80 and what's going to be important to you and i think just from that question you can formulate a list of what did, what did you want your life to be about you know what did you want to accomplish who did you want to spend time with where did you want to give your energy because we only have so much energy we only have so much time and we really don't also know when we're going to die. You don't know how much time you have. How do you want to live up until you're 80? And then also, how do you want to live today? Because you could think about tomorrow all the time. And there's there's definitely benefit in, in planning for the future. But today is today. Tomorrow, it's not really... You're not gonna, you don't, there is no tomorrow today and there's no yesterday today. It's just, what do you have now? You know, how do you live now? There's people that are spending their whole life working towards a retirement or working towards this idea of, of, you know, for me, I know it's probably don't want to get religious on here, but people are working towards heaven and they're, Mm -hmm. they're spending their whole life trying to get to this place when they're missing out on what's really in front of them. You know, it's like, what if heaven was now? What if it was here? What if we saw everything and experienced everything as holy now Mm -hmm. conversations, our people, our friends, our enemies, our food, our plants, our vehicles, everything. If you, if you find that everything is special and connected, then I think you can really enjoy now. I used to do some really brutal, like landscaping work, you know, in the, in Georgia in the summertime, you know, it's just, just terribly hot and, you know, doing manual labor. And I worked with this Mexican guy and he'd always, he's very religious and he'd always just say, it's going to be better in heaven, man. And I was, I just thought, man, that's great that he has that to hold on to, to, to get through the day. But, but a lot of people, that is their thoughts. Like I, I just got to get through this miserable life Yeah. and it'll be better on the other side. But and I got to work this corporate job and it sucks. But one day I'm going to have the money to do the things I want to do. And well, that that's what I was going to say. Bus, you know, 
for some people, heaven is just retirement. But what if you don't make it there? Right. And, and I, then you you spent your whole life being miserable for for what? Right. It's like, what can you do today? And, I, I, and for me, it's been the best experiences have been in sharing my experiences with others, sharing the things that I've found that are just amazing and life-changing and helping give that to other people and serving that in that way. I don't think anything can top that. So for me, that's my, my Dharma, my life path that I hope to keep following is, is just in service. And I don't know that everybody's answer will be the same, but yeah, my advice is just to think about, think about where you want to be when you're 80 and who you want to have cultivated relationships with and, and, uh, and think about today. Be present. Yeah. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Thank you for the flight today. That was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. I've done a lot of cool things, but the second my feet left the ground there, it was something else. Thanks for sharing your story and advice. And uh, I think you've got an awesome perspective on life, and I think more people should adapt it. Thank you, man. And, and I, I believe that what you're doing here with the podcast is super important. You know, it's from your experience it's a it's a really cool thing and you get to travel around and see all these people and and have these experiences but you're also you know it can be really inspiring for the people that are going to listen to to get up get off their couch maybe they can live different today maybe they can plan something for the weekend or or throw out this idea or this storyline of how they should be living and challenge it you know try something new that's the hope thank you for for putting this together and putting in the effort and i look forward to seeing where these our journeys our journeys keep going and where our paths collide again hope to cross paths again soon yeah man so you're staying at uh in the old blue chair tiny house tonight so love to hear your experience more on that and yeah i just hope you get to enjoy enjoy chattanooga and enjoy this place before you head back to the concrete jungle yeah, thanks for the opportunity. You want to just tell people where they can find more information on all the things you're involved in. So, uh, One Sky Project, the website is, is www.oneskyproject.com. And you can learn about the different nonprofits that we worked with there. If you want to contribute to their cause, all, all the money goes directly to them. And then we have a website, Live a Little Chat. That's chat is two T's, C-H-A-T-T, short for Chattanooga. So www.livealittlechat.com for the tiny house vacation rentals. And if you're interested in the meditative experience of smoking a cigar and you want to try something fabulous, agonorsaleaf.com. Agonorsa is A-G-A-N-O-R-S-A leaf.com. And there will be a retailer link on there that will show where the nearest cigar shop is. Our yoga studio in town is called Southern Soul Yoga. And if you click on there, then we have a schedule with the weekly and, and monthly kirtans that we do on that schedule. So I think that about sums up all my plugs for having these experiences if you want to come to Chattanooga and try something different.